Knock, knock. Who's there? Hey, it's Seth. And this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second with a long overdue all Q&A episode. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Creative isn't who you are. It's what you do. Along the way, creativity has gotten a mystical rap, as if it's some sort of gift. It's not. It's a choice. It's a skill. If you have a job where you get to decide what you do, you are a creative, a working creative, and you can get better at it. I'm thrilled to say that the Creatives Workshop is back, the most active of all the Akimbo workshops. It's about people who want to level up and make a difference with their creative work. I hope you'll check it out. Visit akimbo.com slash go for all the upcoming workshops. Go make a ruckus. Yes, it's true. The questions keep coming in. They get better and better, more cogent, more pointed, more helpful, more plaintive. And I collected enough of them that I decided it was worth blowing through a bunch. Here we go. Hey, Seth. I'm Julian from Switzerland. I've been a big fan of yours for a very long time. Indeed, I think you're managing throughout your daily blog, this podcast, and your books to not only share great ideas, but to more importantly make us think about specific topics, important topics. While I understand how years of hard work allowed you to find your audience with whom your ideas resonate, some of those ideas, especially the ones about education and public health issues, are worth discussing with a broader range of people. How do you get people to care? Indeed, how do you get people to care about important topics that might not be in the headlines? And even then, when such topics are on the front page, it's hard to get away from the surface to have a more profound discussion about them. Complex topics that necessitate long and thoughtful discussions might not be the easiest thing to bring up in this day and age of smart and fast everything, but this doesn't change the fact that they are indeed important topics and that we need to be able to talk about them. How do you get people to care? And when they care, how do you get people to talk constructively about a topic? I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Thanks for everything you do. Thank you for kicking us off, Julian. This is obviously a problem that's been around for a very long time. The real question is, which people? If you look at the New York Times from 1900 or 1920 or 1940, what you will see is that what most people were talking about most of the time didn't matter. That the masses of people, define the masses any way you like, are easily distracted and focused almost always on something that is short-term, sometimes trivial, sometimes banal, and it occupies our attention because mass media has always been about mass, and so it gets amplified. But, and it's a huge but, throughout history, there have been small groups of people who spread the word, small groups of people who stick with something over time, small groups of people who are having really important conversations to change 
the culture over time. I don't think this was planned. I think there's a little bit of survivor bias involved in that we are lucky that we have evolved as a world, as a culture, in a bunch of directions that we're pleased with. Things like understanding science and the natural world, things like creating a civil society where most people are living better, more secure lives than they were 100 years ago. But it's not because of the chattering masses. It's because of specific individuals who spread the word. And I am so lucky and so proud of the people who listen to this podcast and who read my blog. They're not the only people in the world who are leading, but they are leading. So I spend no time at all trying to figure out how to reach more people. I spend a lot of time thinking about how I can help the people I am already able to talk with, give them the tools and the stories so that they can spread the word. It might not be enough, but I think it's what we need. Thanks for this. Hi, Seth. One quick question about a popular marketing message that seems to be more prevalent now than ever. It goes like this. You deserve to make a living doing what you love. On the one hand, it seems a little bit, um, I don't know, entitled to claim that. But on the other end of the spectrum, there seem to be a lot of creators who are embracing this way of thinking to their benefit. Very curious to hear where you fall on that spectrum. And thanks for all of the service you do for the gig economy. Thank you, John. Throughout history, people have done jobs that future generations or previous generations would never want to do. And some of those people decided to love their work. And I think that this is still true. I think this will be true going forward. The number of people who can make a living teaching juggling or make a living being a symphony conductor is quite tiny. And I can also tell you, having known some symphony conductors, is that after a while, getting on one more plane isn't as fun as it seemed at the beginning. So really what we're talking about is this. There are a few people who are doing performative work looking like they're getting paid to do their hobby. But the people that are the happiest are people who have decided to treat the work they get paid for like their hobby. Because after all, if we're going to spend 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or in some cases 80 hours a week doing our job, deciding to love it might be a good way forward. Hey, Seth. This is Paul from Bucks County, Pennsylvania. I recently heard you answer the question about the music business. I, too, work in the music business as well as several other businesses. You mentioned the idea of scarcity driving value. I wanted to see if you believed in abundance theory and the whole idea of the fact that there's enough work and enough clients for all of us to make successful businesses and successful sales and how that comes into play with the music business as well as other businesses. I understand that this is a complicated topic and may be different for both situations. So do you walk to school or do you take your lunch, Paul? Because I don't believe that scarcity and abundance are counter to each other. Abundance of ideas creates a more informed marketplace. Abundance of ideas creates more trust. Abundance of ideas earns people permission. That giving away listening to your music makes it more likely that people will pay 
for the scarce souvenir of hearing you perform your music live, that we can have both at the same time. The second half of your question, do I believe there are enough clients and opportunities to go around? There's no doubt about it. My friend Pablos has pointed out that in the last 50 years, people on earth have created 3 billion jobs. That when you think about it, why is anyone unemployed? Why is it that we can't find one more person something to do of value? Because, of course, we can. We keep doing it. And the same thing is true for markets. When markets come together, when people who are informed and connected and who trust come together, it creates new opportunities for more people. So approaching any given market with a sense of abundance makes sense because the generosity turns around and repays us. But it is also true that scarcity remains the thing that people will pay for because if it's all the same and it's all there all the time, we're not going to pay for it. What we will pay for is something that is distinct, something that is scarce, something that is worth paying for. Thanks for this. Hi, Seth. This is Nikos from the Czech Republic, or Czechia, which is how the country is now officially called in English. Anyway, I really enjoyed your very practical, almost Tim Ferriss-like episode, Meta Dialogues and Placeholders, and I'm calling to ask a very practical question. In response to Mufudzi from Botswana, you talk about how you make us, your listeners, do the mental work and engage with your ideas by leaving out certain parts of the story. And I must say, it totally works on me. And as an educator, I would like to do the same to my students. So my question is, how do I know where to leave a blank? I suspect we won't hear a complete answer from you, but a little more to go on would be much appreciated. Thanks for everything you do. You have had a huge impact on how I see myself, the world, and the role I play in it. Oh, and by the way, what do you think about changing a country's name? Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Thanks, Nikos. My grandmother left me very few items, but one of them is a small set of six dessert plates, and on the back it says, made in Czechoslovakia. So when I was listening to the beginning of your question, I was thinking of her. She was proud of my work as a as she called it, a freelancer. She had no idea what I did for a living, but I think of her whenever I think of Czechia. So thank you for this. Changing the name of a country sounds like a great idea unless you're a map maker, which means it's a huge hassle, but in the digital age, easier than it used to be. Names are flags, they're signals, they're ways of telling people who you are and what you stand for. And if you have a new thing that you would like to stand for, well, it doesn't hurt to change the name so that people know that that's what you just tried to tell them. But back to your first question. The key to the whole thing is enrollment. If people are enrolled in the journey, if they are voluntarily, eagerly trying to get to the next stage, they will fill in huge blanks. The hard part isn't figuring out which part to skip. The hard part is earning enrollment. To get kids hooked on the idea that it is fun to fill in the blank. If you've got a classroom of kids, and they are lucky to have you indeed, you've got a classroom of kids who just want to know, will this be on the test? You can't leave anything out. 
if you want them to become engaged in that mindset. On the other hand, if you can figure out how to do the hard work, and it takes a long time to persuade them that figuring it out is the point, then what you will discover is that several months into the semester, you barely have to tell them anything because they don't want you to tell them the answer. They simply want you to hint at what the question might be. Hi, Seth. Christina from New York. Thank you for your recent podcast about dog shelters. I have a question. How a message of do not surrender your dog to the shelter can be delivered successfully so that people understand that the probability of their surrendered dog to be euthanized is greater than to be adopted. The volume of intake of the dogs to, for example, New York Animal Care Center in Harlem is outrageous. Eight dogs per day, according to 2019 statistics. One dog every hour. The capacity of the shelter that is actually a control center of the city is 75 dogs in total. Adoptions do not happen as often as intakes. The message or promotions of adopting animals are joyful, beautiful images of happy endings, events in the Central Park of vans full of beautiful puppies for adoption and people feeling good about themselves when they adopt. Now, there is not so much education about out there for people who decided to give up their dogs to shelter. They do not understand that it is not so easy to make an adoption happen. I want to spread the message, rehome your dog yourself, and educate population about to not give it to shelters that usually has no space. The message is demanding, demanding the effort from the owner. The ending might be a death for the dog if the effort is not successful. So it brings negative emotions of uncertainty, fear, and unpleasant feelings. I guess the content of pain in marketing does not usually bring positive impact. I think people avoid watching sadness and pain around them. So what form of marketing of delivering this message you think would work? Rehome your dog yourself. Thank you so much. I appreciate your answer. Thank you, Christina. This is heartbreaking. Nathan Winograd, the pioneer of the no-kill shelter movement, and I have spent time talking about this very problem. And Nathan is a hero in my book, and so are you. The problem is bigger than messaging. So let's just take a minute to break it into pieces. We have two challenges that are largely out of our control. The first one is this. Dogs that aren't spayed or neutered reproduce. So do cats. And when they reproduce, the multiplier effect means that the supply of dogs keeps going up and it goes up pretty quickly. Number two is it's not particularly difficult for somebody who can't take care of a dog for whatever reason, and I won't get into that in detail, to go to a parking lot and just let the dog go. And there are countries around the world that don't have the shelter system of the United States, that don't have the dog catcher system of the United States, where there are wild dogs running around. And we have made a decision in many cultures that we don't want that. And therefore, we have signed up to collect the dogs and to take care of the dogs. It is better for the shelter system, for somebody to bring a dog to a shelter 
than for them to let the dog loose in a park. It's also possibly better for the dog in the long run. And in terms of cats and birds, it's better for the cat and the birds. So what we don't want to do, what we can't do, is create a dynamic where if you bring a dog to a shelter, you will be penalized or shamed because people won't decide to just keep the dog. They will probably simply let the dog run free. If we care about the plight of these animals, the ones we call our best friends, the answer seems to me to be collective action. And it's collective action in two simple directions, both aided by technology. The first one is this. You can't have a dog if you don't spay it or neuter it unless you have a permit as a breeder. And number two, you can't have a dog or a cat unless it has a microchip in it. If you release a dog or a cat with a microchip in it, someplace where it is going to go wild and it gets caught, you are responsible. It turns out you need a license to drive a car. It turns out you can't abandon a car by a side of the road. And I guess the open question is, why can't we find the collective will to treat dogs and cats, our best friends, at least as well as we treat cars? Hi, Seth. This is Drew from Cleveland. In your Project Debt episode, you said that to scale up a business, you would need employees who are replaceable cogs. The example you used was a babysitting business where all the sitters are basically the same. I feel like you might be trolling us since you're always talking about being the linchpin, the indispensable person doing things that aren't easily replaced or automated. I guess one way to avoid being a cog in a machine is to become the machine myself, but that's not the kind of advice I would expect from you. What am I missing? Thanks for all you do. Thank you, Drew. This is a great final riff from me on this episode. Let me be really clear. If we look at organizations that have scaled reliably over time, they tend to do it by dipping into the pool of indoctrinated workers who are waiting to be told what to do, who are eager to find out if this is going to be on the test, who want to exchange a day's work for a day's pay, who want a manual and a structure. And that work, that industrial work, the one that we are indoctrinated to embrace, that work is the work that comes inside a scaling institution, an industrial one. And so when they build the Marriott Hotel in your town, it doesn't succeed or fail if every single person who works there, the front desk clerk, the people who clean the rooms, the person who cleans the pool, if every single person who works there has to be someone who is eagerly leaning in to what is possible. No, that would be really hard to staff. Even giant consulting firms, places like McKinsey, that pay starting salaries of over $100,000, that fight to recruit people from the fanciest business schools, most of the people who work there aren't the single best people who ever worked there. The math just doesn't support that. And so to get to scale, we build a system that doesn't depend on a linchpin in every job because that's really hard to scale. Do you succeed by hiring, retaining, training, and encouraging people to go outside the bounds of what you expect from them? Of course you do. But the underlying structure needs to be we're not depending on miracle workers, that we are not depending 
on superstars in every single role in order to scale. That's not how Starbucks got where Starbucks got. It's not how countries build bureaucracies. So my argument to the freelancers and bootstrappers who are listening to this is you might be a linchpin. You might be someone who likes to do a different job every day. You might be like the kind of person who wants to lean into the job over expectations. Great. But if you want to build something bigger than yourself, you're not going to do it by demanding that every single person you hire is a version of you. Because that sort of person, hard to find, hard to hire, hard to retain. So no, I wasn't trolling anybody. I was simply lining up around what does it mean to build an industrial entity? We'll close with this nice little note from super far away. Thanks again for listening. As you know, I do love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or anything else, please visit akimbo.link. That's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K and click the appropriate button. We'll see you next time. Namaste, Seth. This is Swamini B, a Vedanta teacher and a Hindu monk from busy Mumbai, India. Related to your recent episode on Project Debt, I wanted to offer a profound perspective from our Vedic tradition. We understand that we have a rinam, a sacred debt, to five sets of relationships from whom we have received hugely. These are, one, people around us extending to the larger community, two, plants, animals, and other beings in our environment, three, gurus and teachers for the knowledge that they have shared with us, four, our ancestors, and five, different deities who preside over different phenomena. We honor this rhythm, the sacred debt we have to these five sets of relationships by our contribution and fulfilling our responsibilities. This vision and way of living helps us see our interconnectedness. Seth, I deeply value you, your work, and the phenomenal change you are making in this world. Dhanyavadaha is a Sanskrit word for more than thank you, and it means that we are all blessed. Dhanyavadaha, Seth. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know? And none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What All MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. 
not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.